The global pandemic has tested the resilience of organisations in every corner of the Australian economy. So, what have we learned? And are we ready for whatever comes next? Hello and welcome to our podcast, Transforming Business with Minta Ellison, ideas and challenges that are shaping our future. Even before COVID-19, Australia was in danger of breaking its decades-long record of unbroken economic growth, but nobody expected it to end this spectacularly. The pandemic has tested the resilience of organisations everywhere. Entire industries that seemed in rude health just a few weeks ago have been brought to their knees, while others have quickly had to scramble to satisfy a sudden surge in demand. One leader who has seen these extremes firsthand is Anne Ward. In her governance roles spanning superannuation, education and online retail, Anne is helping steer Colonial First State, RMIT and Red Bubble through wildly contrasting challenges towards a stronger future. To find out the inside story and hear Anne's reflections on where Australia goes from here, Minter Ellison partner Michael Hughes caught up with Anne for a virtual chat. Thanks very much, um, Anne, for agreeing to do this. It's, um, it's wonderful for us to engage in this way. And I guess my sort of first question for you is, it's just been an amazing year. Um, this is a crisis like we've really not seen before. I suppose going forward, what do you think the economy is going to look like in the next three to five years? Mm. Well, there's, there's a couple of ways I could answer that, Michael. I think at the moment it's really hard to forecast the next uh, three to five months let alone the next three to five years. But I'll have a go. I, I think that first it's important to remember that the economic impact of the pandemic is essentially a demand shock. It's not a crisis in supply. There have been some supply chain weaknesses exposed, but it's largely demand-driven um, demand has been taken away due to the lockdowns and travel restrictions and the response to the health crisis. And that's a bit unusual for economic crises. Classical theory would tell you when you bring back demand, when those restrictions ease, the economy will bounce back. And so a few months ago, there was lots of discussion about a V-shape or a W-shape recovery and how quickly uh, we would get back to where we were before. I think, though, that as this has um, unfolded and has the, the sort of rolling and, and indefinite nature of the health crisis has become clearer, there's a lot more uncertainty in the predictions for the economy. And I think that uncertainty creates a lack of confidence. And so business confidence and consumer confidence I think have have significantly eroded in the past few months. My feeling is that the recovery is not going to be as quick as we might have thought, uh, and it's not going to be linear. That's interesting. Tell me more about that. So talking about the Australian economy, um, I think in three to five years we will be on our way to recover 
but we will not be fully recovered. The economic crisis has impacted different industries in very different ways. And so at one end of the spectrum, you have aviation, travel, you have businesses, uh, particularly small business that rely on on foot traffic. Uh, you have education. All of those have had a very, very significant and rapid and negative impact. So cash flow essentially went to zero overnight and forward bookings evaporated. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, you've got some businesses, some industries that have really thrived through this. And um, there are businesses in technology, businesses, uh, anything to do with online e-commerce has actually really benefited from what's happened. And so those areas, clearly the recovery uh, will will be quicker. So to summarise, it's really uncertain but uh, in three to five years, we're not going to be we're not going to be back where we were at the beginning of 2020. And you must have seen that um, that difference across the portfolio of companies that you're associated with: um, Redbubble, RMIT, Colonial First State, all in different parts of that pattern that you've just described. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Michael. In fact, just in those three three companies, there's a really broad spectrum of, of impacts. So maybe I'll start with Colonial First State, which is essentially a superannuation and, and wealth platform investment business. The first impact for, for Colonial First State was probably March, when the, the lockdowns began. Our, our first and urgent concern was how did we implement our business continuity plan? We've got 2,000 staff. How did we rapidly get them all working from home, working remotely? What were the critical or essential roles that had to continue to have access to the offices? We've got a very large contact centre for you know, more than a million mm-hmm. members and investors. How do, we get, how do we get that operating remotely? I've got, I've got to say the team at Colonial did an awesome job in getting the contact centre working from home in, in a couple of weeks when if we'd probably if we'd decided you know, before this we'd like to do that, the answer would have been it's impossible. But, mm-hmm. of course, we did it because we had to. Mm. It required a rapid response. So what did you do next? Um, the second bit that was happening um, for an investment business was the market dislocation that occurred in March and April and we saw very rapid falls in in asset values. There was a lot of activity with members uh, and investors switching between investment options. So, so the switching volumes went up, which means a lot more work in, in administering and implementing those switches. Interestingly, compared to the, the GFC decade ago, The pattern was different. We saw only about 40% of those switches into cash. More than 25% of the switches were into equities, which which tells me that members were taking advantage of buying opportunities and perhaps reflecting a longer-term view of uh, how the markets would recover. So so that that was the the first piece. The second piece, uh, obviously, with the enormous volatility um, that we saw in that period. There was a lot uh, of work being done 
closer monitoring of liquidity and investment risk in our portfolios and in our investment funds. So that was the, that was the second piece. The third piece for Colonial was the targeted government interventions that we saw. So there, there were two of those. There was um, firstly the, the temporary reduction in minimum pension payments, and that was implemented in April. That was announced in April and had to be implemented by the end of the financial year, I think was the, the time frame. But for Colonial, that was a big deal. We pay more pensions than any other organisation uh, in the country after the Commonwealth Government. We've got a quarter of a million pensioners. And so there was a lot of work, a lot of communication with members and a lot of admin required to implement those changes. The second government intervention, which is continuing, uh, was the early release program for superannuation. So uh, and under that program, superannuation fund members could take 10000 out of their accounts uh, during FY20, uh, and they could take another 10000 um, for FY21. So by August, this has all been reported in the industry level by APRA, there's been more than 3 million applications under that program from more than 2 million unique members and more than $32 billion paid out of the superannuation system under that program. At Colonial, we've paid out about $1.3 billion to date. I won't go into the operational complexity and the the rapidity with which we had to figure out how to implement that, but that, that was a lot, of, a lot of work. What was the impact of that? Um, I think overall that program has provided much-needed emergency support to Australians in hardship, but it's also awakened a lot of super fund members to the fact that um, their superannuation is not just a number on the annual statement, uh, it's real money and it is their money. And so I hope in the longer run that leads to greater member engagement. So there, there, there were three very important impacts on the colonial business. But in terms of what we do and how we continue, you know, the, 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 there's not been a real impact on the long-term business model. It would be a different story at Redbubble, of course. So what happened there? Redbubble uh, is an online retail uh, marketplace. It's a, it's a marketplace for independent artists and we create products, essentially a print-on-demand type business. At Redbubble, we have benefited from the, uh, the rapid acceleration uh, of that trend towards online retail. In March, there was a dip. I think the whole world paused for a couple of weeks, but from April, it's been a, a very steep um, growth trajectory just in terms of how how the company's perceived. In, in March, the company's listed on the ASX. Our share price got down to 40 cents uh, in, in mid-March as, as that kind of collective intake of breath was occurring. Today, the share price is 375 and um, the company's just gone through a billion-dollar market cap. So that gives you an idea of the volatility that we've experienced. The, the business has experienced very rapid growth, and so we've had to digest that growth in an environment where everyone is uh, working from home, working remotely. And 
uh, Redbubble's a global company. More than 90% of our revenues are offshore. We have offices all around the world, fulfillers and, and offices. And in a, you know, with travel going to zero, that's been incredibly challenging. Overall, though, for Redbubble, the impact has been positive because it has accelerated that trend online. And how did you respond at RMIT? For RMIT, the crisis began in January when we realised the diff- there, were, there were difficulties in uh, international students joining us for the commencement of term. So usually by late January, early February, students are arriving and that was the time when there were travel bans imposed uh, for China and then progressively uh, for other places until the borders were closed. That rapidly escalated through February and March uh, to the point where we had to shut down our our city campus. The Vietnam campus had already been uh, shut down by the Vietnamese government. What were some of the challenges that came with that? We had to switch to a fully remote uh, learning and teaching environment. We had large cohorts of international students who physically could not get here and then we had to uh, move move the whole workforce to a remote environment. So there were technological challenges with that. There were massive challenges for our academic staff who they hadn't been used to teaching remotely. And so for some of our operations, some of our vocational education courses, we, we, we have uh, apprenticeships, plumbing, for instance. It's really hard to do that online. So um, for, 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 for a range of courses, you know, some, there, there have been a whole lot of workarounds. So, so that was the first piece. The second piece, the financial impact for RMIT as for other Australian universities has been very significant. The, the revenue from international onshore students is much higher than domestic students. And so a small proportion of students not arriving had a, a disproportionate impact on revenue. For RMIT, we've projected uh, our revenue for calendar 20 will be down about $175 million, and we're forecasting a further $125 million reduction for calendar 21. How did you react to that? A lot was done in the, in the early phase to, uh, to stop discretionary expenditure, to, to do a range of things, but we still need... Uh, to find cumulative savings of about 200 million. So in a university, a lot of your expenses are at people. The human impact of this is is devastating. Universities have not been eligible for JobKeeper. That was deliberate. There was a lot of discussion about it, but that's where we've ended up. So for RMIT, we just completed a voluntary redundancy program. We've just closed um, the program rather, which has resulted in 355 uh, employees um, uh, will be leaving the organisation and and that, I think, will have annual savings of about $48 But clearly more savings will be needed. We are also looking ahead to what the new normal will be for the business model because we believe there are fundamental uh, and permanent changes in the structure of Uh, the higher education business model in Australia. And so we are uh, looking ahead and undertaking a very deep review of the university strategy to figure out what we need to do to adjust to the new world. What changes are we going to need to make in the operating model to survive and thrive 
uh, and what will the new world look like? And that work is underway. So I should, I should pause there. I feel like I've gone into a lot of detail, but by chance, my, my three uh, main boards at the moment have really um, spanned the, the spectrum of impact uh, from COVID. It's an extraordinary um, artefact with what's happened in the pandemic that, you know, has been real to us probably for a little under six months, but as you've articulated, is going to continue for quite a period of time, or at least its economic impact. Um, so yeah. they're, they're just amazing insights. We've tagged this about building resilience. My reflection on this is that, you know, resilience is sort of a, was traditionally regarded as a sort of a a personal attribute, but increasingly we're seeing it as a word that you can use in a corporate and a commercial context and also around organisations, including government. And it, it means, I think, probably much more than just financial strength, um, which is, I think, probably in the post-GFC environment everybody focused on. The impact that this pandemic and the crisis is having on people is very apparent. And the fact that I think organisations and governments are frankly putting, in my assessment, those concerns at the forefront of the way that they're responding, with the financial coming um, a very close but a second nonetheless, at the moment seems to be a real feature and a point of distinction between now and the, the GFC. And I think it's perhaps because of the health aspect of it. It's not an impact of some sort of strange financial disturbance offshore. It started mm. with people and their health we're seeing the impact on health with people working from home. Mental health is becoming an issue. So resilience for organisations, we're starting to think about, extends all of these across all of these different perspectives. So I guess from your perspective as a, as a, as a, as a leader and a chair of boards, you know, what does this sort of idea, how does this resonate with, with you and the way that you interact with your organisations and your fellow board members? I think you're spot on, Michael. This this crisis, because of its nature, has focused many minds on the breadth of operations of companies and the fact that resilience is not not just about financial ability to survive and and thrive. It's it, it touches every aspect of your operations, and so that's not new. But this sort of health crisis and and economic crisis has brought that home, I think, to companies in, in a very immediate way. And so the discussions that I'm seeing around resilience really cover every aspect of the company's operations. So there's obviously the financial strength, you know, the strength of the balance sheet, the, the cash flows, you know, how, leave aside, will there be money to invest, but, but how how the operations will, will continue from a financial perspective. But then people would, would be absolutely up there, if not ahead of financial, uh, a very, very uh, close second. So, you know, the ability of your staff to be resilient, to work in different ways, to find different ways of engaging with each other, the obligations of companies to look after their staff in an environment where, we don't actually get to see them. How do we look after their mental and physical health and well-being in this kind of environment? The, the, the concept is, you know, companies are also thinking about the resilience of their business models. 
So I talked with RMIT about, well, should, should the business model, must the business model change um, to adapt to a new, a new normal? And a lot of organisations are really thinking that through. The resilience of your, or your, your thinking about customers and, and what will their loyalty be like through this kind of environment? Will they be there at the end of the crisis? Will customer habits change? You know, I talked about Redbubble, where we are seeing a lot more people through necessity buying stuff online. Will they go back? We don't, we don't think so. Not all of them. Some will go out to shopping malls when they can but we think there have been structural shifts in in shopping habits for instance for consumer goods i think companies are also thinking much more deeply about the resilience of their leadership models what are the leadership capabilities you know in terms of people leadership and visionary leadership management um, in this environment how can leaders be more visible to their people um, maintain the same engagement different behaviors and different different rhythms of communication are required and I think also uh, companies are thinking about the resilience of their governance model so what's that meant for board directors um, the way boards are operating and have operated through the crisis has changed and I uh, you know couldn't say how enduring some of the changes will be but I've no doubt there will be some enduring changes. Just as an example, I mean, through over the last six months, I think it's fair to say, or certainly for, for, for my boards, um, there have been much more frequent meetings, sometimes weekly. Boards are working much more closely with management, as you would expect during a crisis. Uh, there's been a need for much more rapid and uh, clear decision making, sometimes with very imperfect information. The flow of information to directors has been reviewed and um, I think on all of my boards we've introduced new methods of, of flash reporting or headline reporting of certain issues. So for, as I, talk, I spoke about the early release program in Super. So for a period at Colonial we were getting flash reports initially every uh, twice a week on how that program was evolving and how you know operationally we were meeting the needs. And so I think and and also I would say the need for boards to be more visible, which is strange, but it's similar to what I said with uh, leadership in the companies. You know, board members are much more frequently being involved in town hall type broadcasts and discussions, and being I think more uh, more in touch with with the employees. Are you, do you think we're starting to bake in some habits? along these lines. I, I'm certainly seeing it more and more and I think people are welcoming it. There's a little bit of Zoom fatigue, but um, all, all <laughs> in all, I think people are, are, are enjoying seeing probably more of their leaders in a more regular way. I think so. And I, and I think that's, you know, that's one of the aspects that will endure. You know, you talk about Zoom fatigue, fatigue uh, and I'm, I'm certainly feeling it. I, I do think we will see some permanent changes in how companies operate you know there'll be more flexibility in where people work and how often they come into the offices but I don't believe that we will oh this is wonderful we can all now go and live in Broken Hill and work remotely I don't think that is going to be sustainable for the large 
majority of the workforce. I think we'll see people working from home more frequently, but not totally for a whole range of reasons. I guess the other the other factor that we've seen is um, we've, we've seen our governments step up in different ways because, because I suppose when it does start with a health crisis, you know, the, the natural expectation of the community is that the government, this, is, this sits squarely with the government and then moving promptly to financial support programs. It's an interesting trend when you sort of think about where the dial is moved towards, you know, whether as a community we are going to be more dependent on government or increasingly the government to help mm. and sort of move away from that trend we saw some time ago, which was saying governments should sort of get out of the way. I wonder if you've had any thought about that sort of topic. Yeah, well, it's, it's a fascinating topic, Michael. You know, I, I remember back in March, one of the very early public statements from the Prime Minister he spoke about the fact the country was facing two crises, one a health crisis and one an economic crisis, and, you know, that the need for, for government response would be to balance those those two things. I'll, I'll come back to whether there's two or actually more crises that we're facing, but mm. I, as, as, I, as I look at what has happened, I think some aspects of some of the responses that we've seen in Australia have perhaps not got the balance right between those two things. The longer-term impacts of harsh and protracted lockdowns are not well understood. I personally think, sitting here in Melbourne, that the, there will be impacts that we will feel for long-term for a long time, uh, you know, impacts on social cohesion, on economic growth, on community well-being, on work, on business resilience that perhaps have been underestimated in the short-term response to the health threat. Knee-jerk reactions to a crisis are okay, but that's in the short term. Over the longer term, and this this crisis is clearly becoming a much more protracted long-term event, over time you've got to introduce a much more nuanced and carefully thought-through solution. And so time will tell how our public policy-making landscape might change. I do think that there can be irretrievable damage done to various aspects of society through protracted harsh lockdowns that may not be proportionate to the nature of the health threat that we face. And those impacts can be not just on our economic recovery, as I said before, but on a whole range of uh, factors that um, are important to how we live our lives and how we want Australian society to operate. Yeah, it's um, it's it, it is really um, difficult to say. Um, you made the point at the start with where you were mentioning earlier on. You were mentioning that people were making decisions at the start based on imperfect information and making them quickly. And I think people responded well to that happening. People just saying mm -hmm. things have to be done and. And then if we've got this wrong, we can recalibrate. But I think, I think what you're saying is we're now starting to move to that second phase where having made those decisions with imperfect information, more information is becoming available. 
Yeah. And therefore, you can start to make um, better informed and more carefully nuanced decisions. And I think that's yeah. that's definitely right. I actually think there, there. I think of it in three phases. I think the first phase is what I think of as survival, and I think companies and governments and uh, you know all our institutions were in survival mode in that first phase, which is about for companies, you know, can our business survive? What are we going to have to do to survive? What discretionary spending can we cut? What opex can we cut? How do, do we need to raise capital, husband our cash, all of those things, survival mode. Oh, and, you know, how do, how do we look after our people? How do we, mm-hmm. how do we continue to be able to, to, to run, run the business and, and look after our people? The second phase is what I think of as reimagining. It's sort of like, okay, what, what's the shape of this and the duration of this crisis? How do we find balance between that short-term cutting and survival versus we may need to sustain uh, this kind of high alert situation for a long period? How do we adapt to that? And how do we imagine what, what does the company need, what does the country need to look like going forward if this is going to continue for, for a long period of time? What are the changes to our business model that are going to be needed? What are the changes to our public policy settings that are going to be needed? Then the third phase, which we haven't got into yet, really, um, is is what I think about as, as transforming. And that'll be over an even, even longer and more considered time frame, actually making those changes that are going to be necessary to thrive in the new world. We don't even know what the new world is going to look like yet, so we're still in that reimagined phase. Um, I think some some companies are moving into that transform phase and they're making strategic choices now that are going to, you know, transform their business to thrive in what they think is going to happen. I don't think at a, at a, at a government level we are yet in that phase. So before we wrap up, are there any closing remarks? You know, resilience, I think, is, is a great... <laughs> a great topic to be discussing right now Michael we are still very much in the middle of this crisis and it will continue to unfold slowly and what we thought of previously as resilience is being tested in ways that we could not have imagined even six months ago so we're all going to need to dig deep and find depths of resilience um, <laughs> to lead through what I think is going to be quite a, quite an unstable period for some time. Thank you, Anne, for those important insights. It's been very powerful. Thank you. That was Anne Ward in conversation with Minter Ellison's Michael Hughes. For more information about these issues and more, visit minterellison.com forward slash podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes. And you can rate, comment and listen to our previous episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening and goodbye for now. (laughs) 